Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with BC's wildfire emergency, erratic wildfire behavior in the interior as firefighters and first responders scrambling to contain these fires today. Thousands of people are on evacuation alert. Up to 70 properties now burned down or damaged in the Okanagan. That's just a newly released number, up from an estimated 50 to 60 properties yesterday. The Coquihalla Highway remains closed this morning. The wildfires have been brutal on humans and animals, too. B.C. cattle ranchers feeling the strain here as they desperately try to save their cattle from the approaching flames. Let's get an update on that now from my guest, Kevin Boone. He's the general manager of the B.C. Cattlemen's Association. I'm pleased to welcome him. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Uh, My pleasure, Mike. Okay, I know this is a really difficult situation for your people. Can you give me an update? Yeah, we've certainly been under the gun here. Uh, a lot of fires burning, and you got to remember these fires are out in the homelands of where those cattle spend their uh, summer, and so it's a constant chore and a constant uh, worry for these guys about uh, where to move the cattle, and to be quite honest, a lot of our guys are running out of places to move them uh, out there on the range, so there's a lot coming home, a lot coming into uh, feedlot confined areas, and uh just moving out of the way, and that's the ones we can find. Uh, that's pretty rugged country out there, so we're not able to find a lot of them. Uh, we know from past fires that they're pretty resilient. They do find uh, places in the riparian areas and stuff, but with the extreme drought this year, those are challenged as well. So uh, it, it's been a very challenging 52 or three days that uh, a lot of these guys have been uh, battling uh, this, this situation. Yeah, this is a double whammy for sure. You got the fires and the drought that are really hammering these cattle ranch operations. Is there any estimate on how many animals have actually died in these fires? You know, we haven't got a clue at this point in time. Uh, we we know we're we're getting reports of uh, guys that are finding some dead and some uh, injured. Certainly, there's probably going to be as many that have to be. Uh, euthanized as what die and perish in the uh, fires because these cattle even coming out of a fire they might find a safe haven and as they make their way out uh, they'll get into the root wells of these uh, trees that have burnt and tipped and those root wells will be just full of embers and uh, oh. they step into them and get burnt so it's it's very challenging um, and you know the cattle is the one equation when we put the drought onto this and the drought going right across western canada is making feed shortages so we know we're probably going to have to downsize our herd but the other added thing is is these grounds um are not going to recover that quick uh most of our ranchers we think of them as just the cattle producers but at the end of the day they're also managers and stewards of that land and and uh producers of that forage and grass out there and the gatekeepers say it and we could be two and three years out before we can get the use of that land back for 
that wow. grass production. So the challenges of the fire are one thing, but the challenges over the next couple of years are going to be yet another. Could you see some ranches go out of business or maybe downsize their operations as a result of this? You know, there will definitely be some that um, I think will will um, decide to call it quits. Uh, but wow. they're pretty resilient lot, and we're we're we are getting assistance through the federal and provincial governments for. Uh, what we call agri-recovery, and agri-recovery is a fund that is uh, accessible during times of disasters. And we uh, established uh, the criteria for this back in 2017 when we had the fires in and 2018, and we have a very uh, well-put-together plan with government on this that allows um, the ranchers to to access some funding to help get them back. It's exactly what it's, it's meant to be, agri-recovery. It's not to pay their losses. It's the ability to what? get them back in business. Just real quickly, it must be difficult. You were mentioning the difficulty of actually finding where some of these cattle are. you got some rugged, sprawling country out there. What kind, Do you guys got a good system in place for communicating? Uh, you know, Do fire officials tell you, look, the fire is approaching you now is the time to get your animals out of those pastures like how does that work yeah actually this year we were able to um embed ranch liaisons we've got actual ranchers and people that know the ground know the uh area and know the producers that are uh, part of the incident management team so they have direct access to the incident commanders and so we're getting advance notice uh, when possible of two to three days of we need to m- remove those cattle. And the trouble is this year with the volatility and the unpredictability of these fires because of right. that drought level, they, 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 there's sometimes where they'll move them one day and the next day that whole area is consumed. And so wow. it's just uh, uh, on a different precedence this year than others. Kevin Boone, thank you for coming on. I hope there are better days ahead. Thank you. Yeah, well, you thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, Kevin Boone, there is the general manager of BC's largest cattle ranching organization. Let's check in with Liberal MLA Peter Millibar now. He represents Kamloops North Thompson in the fire zone. Peter, thank you for coming on. Great, thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, your your reaction real quickly on the, the provincial response to the fires right now, and then I want to get your take on Horgan here on vacation. Your thoughts? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think the response has really been an ebb and a flow, as we heard from Kevin there. Um, you know, some of the supports have finally kicked in for the ranchers, uh, and that's good, and, and the communication has gotten better. Uh, certainly in the early days, that's not what we were hearing. And so, um, and I think you'll find that across ministries, and really, I think that's the, the underlying worry. Uh, you know, I, I get down in the lower mainland and, and the island people, haven't been living this, but we've been living this for six, seven weeks straight, uh, choking on smoke and the stress and the worry. And so any any glitches in communication, uh, any ministry gets uh, very worrisome for, for the residents. Okay, Premier John Horgan clearly not choking on any smoke right now, spotted on vacation in Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia. Hashtag, where is Horgan trending on social media? Your thoughts? Well, I, I think the fact that hashtag is trending says it all. Um, you know, again, uh, I, I would challenge anyone uh, that thinks that this is overblown uh, to come up uh, to the interior uh, when it's safe, obviously. But, um, you know, the 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 tension is palpable, uh, especially on that Sunday when we weren't sure what was going to happen with the winds. There was fires flaring up everywhere. 
Um, and, and in fact, uh, you know, if the premier was so confident in this vacation plans, why was it so hidden? Why, why did it take 10, 11 days for them to finally admit he wasn't even in the province? And they still don't actually acknowledge where he is in the country. Um, and, um, you know, that right there speaks volumes to, I think he knows in his own heart of hearts, uh, it was wrong to go. And uh, they were hoping to get gone and back. And it's not the same uh, being on a phone briefing once or twice a day with a minister as being in the offices, making sure all of your ministers are on their files. Uh, we're seeing issues with transportation. We're seeing issues across uh, ministerial boards. And, and the public, I think, deserves to know that the premier has got a, a firm hand on that. Otherwise, why do you need a premier? Okay, the Horgan government pushing back on this criticism. Let me play this clip here for you from a public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, and get your thoughts. Here's Farnworth. Our Premier has been in complete solidarity with all the people of British Columbia, whether they have been uh, um, affected by wildfires or whether they are fighting the wildfires on the ground every single day. He is briefed uh, every day. Uh, I, have, I speak to him on a regular basis. The ministers who have the responsibility, which are myself uh, in terms of emergency management BC and uh, the, uh, the Minister of Forests in terms of responsibility for the wildfire service are here. We have been available. Uh, press conferences on a regular basis and the Premier is kept fully uh, apprised of the situation here. In, uh, that's been going on. Okay, so Peter Millibar, he says the Premier's getting briefed every day. He's fully engaged. I mean, what do you want from him? You want him out there holding a fire hose? Like, what do you want him to do? No, but uh, come on. Uh, being uh, somewhere in the Maritimes, from what we've heard, is not the same as being on the ground in B.C., actually hearing from people uh, in real time in, in terms of what's going on, getting the feel for what's going on in the province. I get that he's very isolated where he lives uh, normally compared to where the fires are happening. Um, but to say that yeah. you can be on the East Coast instead of the West Coast is not the same thing. And, and, and I think the fact that you hear the bluster from Minister Farnsworth and, and frankly, the, the um, disdain in his voice that someone had the temerity to even ask a question of where is the Premier, the fact that yeah. they felt they didn't have to even make it known where he would be in the middle of a provincial state of emergency during the worst wildfires ever, uh, is is remarkable to me, and it just shows the arrogance that this government is starting to exhibit file after file after file. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about Premier John Horgan on vacation right now during the wildfire emergencies on the east coast of Canada, up to 70 homes and properties burned down and damaged in the Okanagan, thousands of people on evacuation alert, the Coquihalla Highway shut down, uh, the Premier on vacay. What do you think about that? Star 98, 98 on your cell. Let's go to Jason on the line in Kitsilano. Hey, Jason. Hello. Good morning. Hi. What do you think? Uh, uh, well, I think that it, I have no problem with John Horgan taking holidays with his family. And I think through the communication that we've grown to appreciate with Zoom and Teams meetings and, you know, of course, Skype. And you can go on telephone, text messages, et cetera. The communication, some of the decisions, higher level decisions that have to be made. I'm sure that. He can always be in touch with uh, his team, of course, that's looking after this situation. But I think he, you know, he'll probably do a better job knowing that he's able to spend the time with his family. And psychologically, it's just a better place to be when your family's happy and your wife's happy and you can continue on the, the great work that you do. So okay, I have Jay no problem with it. Okay, Jason, thank you for the call. Well, I don't know. Maybe he's doing Zoom meetings with his staff. He hasn't done any Zoom meetings with the people of B.C. I mean, his absence has been noted now for well over a week before people found out he was on vacation. But Peter Millibar, your thoughts? 
Well, first off, he he very much hid the fact he was on holidays and didn't want to talk about. Well, it. Well, he didn't uh, hide it. He just they just yes, didn't he say did. where. He, it took, well, it took the, ten days for his office to even acknowledge that he was on holidays. Come so on. So what? And, so what? They were asked. He, they were asked last week. Where, well, they were asked last week where he was. Is that is that people correct? Have they been did, asking, people have yeah. been asking for a week and a half where he is. It took a better part of a yeah. day yesterday for the media to get an answer, and even then they wouldn't say where he is. So here's the thing: is he on vacation, sightseeing with his family, or is he fully engaged? Because I can't, you can't have it both ways. The, the minister Farnworth can't say that he's fully engaged uh, while on holidays. The two don't yeah. match up, and so well, you know this is this is the frustration that we are we are trying to convey back on behalf of all of our constituents of how people in this area under uh, huge huge uh, duress. Uh, you know, there's lots of people here that had to cancel their holidays because of the fires. Uh, there's lots of firefighters and, and healthcare workers that have had their their holidays recalled, yeah. um, and the premier yeah. chose to not. Not only did he not change his plans, he's refused to come home even early, in spite of what happened on Sunday. It's it's absolutely uh, not what an actual leader does. And, and people can try to spin this all they want. Uh, you look at the reaction to Ted Cruz from these a lot of yeah. the same people. Uh, it was horrible and rightfully so. And, and I would suggest that if previous premiers had done the same thing for this length of time during a fire emergency, uh, the commentary would be the same as what we're saying right now, and rightfully so. Okay, it reminds me of um, also Scott Morrison, the, the Australian Prime Minister there, went on a vacay uh, to Hawaii during a wildfires there in Australia. Let's go to uh, Rob in Vancouver. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Yeah, first of all, I want to thank you for bringing this to my attention. I didn't know the premier was out of town. He has every right to take a holiday, but, you know, you have to, you know, do it at the right time. Obviously, British Columbia is burning. It, you know, it's obviously better if he's in town, in the province. It's not the same as uh, talking over the phone or having a Zoom meeting. I'm sorry. And if he wanted to take a vacation, you know, we have nice places in British Columbia. He could have gone to Whistler. He could have gone to Harrison. Um, I just think it, the optics are terrible, and I would not be surprised if he's on the first plane out back to Victoria today or tomorrow. Well, they say he's coming back on Thursday. That's the official statement from his office. Let's go to Frank on the line in North Van. Hey, Frank. Hey, how you doing? You know, I, I, I lean to the center right. You know, I'm a conservative. I'm the farthest thing from an NDP supporter. I can't stand them. But this is much ado about nothing. The opposition, this is not the issue to focus on. I mean, really, no one cares. It's like we, the reality is we do live in this Zoom world. He doesn't need to be here to do his job, just like a million other CEOs out there don't need to be in their home office to do their job. Let's, you know, let's focus on real issues, uh, you know, and again, much ado about nothing. Okay, okay, Frank. Thanks for the call. Squeeze another one in here, Steve in Vancouver. Go ahead, Steve. Hi there. I Hi. hope John enjoys his vacation. Uh, there is again no reason for him to be here with uh, with Zoom and phone calls. Um, the last thing we want him to do, anyways, is to show up and do a presser during these fires. He's uh-huh. he's the only government in the entire country who governs the way we're supposed to. Let the ministers responsible for the ministries be the front face. There's no, there's no reason for him to get involved. Enjoy your vacation, John. Okay, Steve, thanks for the call. Both sides of it there. Uh, Peter Millibar, thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the chronically clogged and congested Massey Tunnel now. And if you were one of the thousands of commuters who use, uses that tunnel on a daily basis, you have my sympathies 
uh, for people who have wasted so much of their lives sitting in traffic jams in this uh, brutal transit bottleneck in our province. And it's long been promised here in British Columbia that a replacement of the outmoded and chronically congested Massey Tunnel is coming, and it's coming soon. Now, if you remember the previous Liberal government, how they planned to build a bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel, uh, the new NDP government put the brakes on that, launched a long, a winding review on the project. I can tell you right now that you're going to get a big announcement on this project tomorrow. I get sources in government saying they expect an announcement tomorrow on the preferred replacement for the Massey Tunnel. Rob Fleming, the transportation minister, was a, a guest here on the show uh, several days ago, and he was dropping some hints about this to me just the other day. Have a listen to what he said here. Well, I think we're going to get a significant update uh, sometime very soon. I, I can I can tell you that there's been an incredible level of positive engagement with the federal government. I've made it no secret, our government, and I've been on your program talking about how we think this is a critically important infrastructure project of national significance. Okay, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming speaking to me on an earlier show. Now, you heard him mention the federal government here. Of course, we're into a federal election. So you just know the money is going to be flying here. You watch. Who knows me? Trudeau's out here. One of his cabinet ministers will be out here making an announcement. Big money from the federal government here to replace the Massey Tunnel. Now, here is the question. What do you replace it with? Do you go back to plan A and build a bridge over the Fraser River? Or do you build a new tunnel? Let's discuss now with my guest, Ian Payton, BC Liberal MLA Delta South. He's been on this file for years. Ian, thank you for coming on. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Okay. Right now, we're told the, the only official notice of this to the public is that a business case has been submitted to the federal government on what to do about the Massey Tunnel. What do you think is going to happen here? Because I think what this government wants is another tunnel. That's, uh, that appears to be their preference. Well, yeah. The business case was supposed to be brought to us almost a year ago after they've kicked the can down the road so many times since they killed the uh, the bridge project that we had well underway back in uh, 2016-2017. Very unfortunate that it's taken them almost a year now to get this business case before the public so we know what's going on. Uh, when I was on Delta City Council, I mean, it was all about a bridge. We we met yeah. endlessly with the project manager, Mr. Jeff Freer. Uh, everybody was on board with the city of Delta that a bridge project was the best project. It went directly over top of the existing tunnel and would not take up any uh, housing, uh, areas of Dees Island Park or agricultural land. So uh, I, I'm hoping for a bridge, but... Um, who knows? We're going to wait and see what happens uh, okay. tomorrow. I guess we'll find out. I, I got a feeling you you might be disappointed. I I think they're going to announce a new a new tunnel instead, but it, it's really up in the air. I don't have confirmation either way. But let me play another clip here for you from the transportation minister and get your thoughts. Now here is Rob Fleming. I'm trying to pin him down here on what the preferred option is here. Do they want to build a bridge or do they want to build another tunnel under the river? Have a listen to this. There's 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 information on both bridge and tunnel that is you know going to be crucial for decision makers. You're just and, not you're uh, just not going to tell me, right? We certainly we certainly know what some of the mayors have preferred uh, yeah. for a, a long time. Richmond has always um, felt that the uh, the sight lines of of the bridge that was proposed was a significant 
uh, issue and some of the noise and light that would come at all hours. And, and so they've always, they've never been shy about, uh, you know, okay. they, they wanted a tunnel, but um, they were all engaged in the business case. So those, those opinions, that input is part of it. Okay, so you heard him say there, he said the city of Richmond didn't like the idea of another bridge because, or a new bridge because they didn't like the sight lines, the noise, the light coming from a, a new bridge. They wanted another tunnel instead. But your thoughts? Okay, so Mike, in 1959 when they built the George Massey Tunnel, there was very little marine traffic in the Fraser River. People didn't give a hoot about salmon and sturgeon and, and marine life back then in the environment. So you plunk a massive concrete tube in the tunnel in 1959. You don't do that in 2021 with the, 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 the history now of, of spawning salmon and sturgeon, all the different things in the river, including the marine traffic. Why is it, Mike, that let's just pick a number. Say there's a thousand bridges over rivers and streams and creeks and ocean in B.C., but there's only one tunnel. Why is that? Why are, why are hmm. bridges the most preferred option everywhere in B.C. except here? For some reason, they want to put another concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River. Okay, well, is there a cost advantage to going with the tunnel? Because another thing that he kind of suggested to me the other day was, well, maybe a tunnel would be cheaper. Well, I'll be very curious to find out the facts and the figures if they come out with tomorrow that it's going to be a tunnel. Because let's not forget... We had budgeted $3.5 billion for this new bridge over the Fraser River, which included a whole bunch of new uh, highway lanes, overpasses, all those different things that came with it. The, the successful bid came in at 2.7, so there was a big saving there. And I'll be very curious to see, I, I, I guarantee you the tunnel is going to go way over $4 billion above of, of the saving of what we Whoa. were going to do with the bridge. Okay, you guys had proposed... A 10-lane bridge, which would have been, I think that would have been the biggest bridge in B.C., certainly the longest one. Maybe the Would that have been the largest bridge in the Lower Mainland? Um, yeah, it would be comparable to the Portman Bridge, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it would yeah. be huge. I mean, 10 lanes, uh, a couple of kilometers long, I think. So is it going to be a massive, a massive bridge? Is it possible they could announce a bridge, but a smaller bridge? You know, I, I could certainly live with an eight-lane bridge if we would continue on with that. But don't forget, it, it's sort of comparable if you add in the HOV lane and transit lanes. It's almost comparable to the same amount of commuter traffic going through the tunnel each morning because there's actually three lanes of tunnel traffic each morning going in one direction. Um, so, uh, you know, the other thing is we had plans with this bridge to have a future uh, for light rail to go over top of that bridge so that one day we could actually bring uh, light rail or, or, or SkyTrain to the south side of the Fraser River that would go to the BC Ferry and to the uh, White Rock and the U.S. border. Okay, I suspect that it's going to be interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what's announced here, but I got to feel there's a lot of local politics going on here at play, especially with a federal election going on. Who is the uh, who's the MP down at the site of the tunnel? Is that like Carla Qualtro's riding? Correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Carla so Qualtro's riding is in Delta. Yeah. So this is a liberal riding. Of course, and and yeah. it, it's interesting, Mike, that uh, their announcement tomorrow is <laughs> not in Delta, where we've been the biggest push uh, for for a new crossing. It's going to be in Richmond that just happened oh. to pick up uh, three NDP seats in the last election. So that's where they're going to make their their wonderful announcement. One other quick thing, Mike, I still can't get over this. Mm. I'll never forget the mayor's task force, where the mayors who uh, apparently have engineering degrees decided to tell the province that we think a tunnel is the best option, 
But Ken Baird, the chief of Tawasin First Nations, got up and said, my people do not want to see a concrete tube go back into the Fraser River for environmental reasons. So I, I'd be surprised if they went against First Nations in this proposal. All right, welcome back. Talking about the Massey Tunnel Replacement Project, expecting a big announcement on this tomorrow. What will they announce? Will it be Plan A, a bridge over the Fraser River to replace the Massey Tunnel, or could it be another tunnel? I think they're going to go another tunnel. I think they're looking at an eight-lane immersed tube tunnel. As they build these elsewhere, you get these big tubes, they sink them to the bottom of the river and then link them up together underwater. I think that's what they're going to announce tomorrow. What do you think is the best thing to do? Ian Payton is my guest. Mike and Vernon on the line. Hey, Mike. Morning, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? So I worked in the trucking industry down there for about 30 years, and, and here's the problem with the tunnel. You can't run anything oversized or dangerous cargo through it, so now you're going to yeah. be forcing a lot of vehicles around on the Alex Fraser. But, you know, uh, your guest made a lot of really good points. Cost is one of them. And the other one is if they had just done what the NDP or what the Liberals had already started, that bridge would be close to opening now. Now okay. we're looking at another five years out. Thanks for the call. Ian Payton, what was the timeline to build the bridge that you guys started building? Would it be open by now or close? Absolutely. <clears throat> just before the election in 2017, we had companies working on a uh, sand on the side of the highway for preload. We had pile driving tests that were done. Everything was in place to have this thing open uh, literally in uh, early 2022. Okay, Al on the line in Surrey. Hi, Al. Hi. Uh, I spoke to an engineer when this project first came out for a bridge, and they said the soil was poor down to 300 feet on both sides of the river and under a tunnel. They would have had to pile drive in the middle of the river to... If you get an accident in there, whether you've got uh, six lanes or eight lanes, it ties everything up. You can't get at it, whereas with a bridge, you can. A tunnel is a built-in coffin, quite honestly. Right now, it is a built-in coffin at times when there's an accident. Thanks for the call. What about that soil? I mean, would there have been complications for building a bridge from the soft soil there, Ian Payton? You know, that's a, a common fallacy that people like to bring up. So, Mike, what, what, what the piles nowadays are called friction piles, and there's bridges all over the world in, in soft soils that have been built. I mean, not every bridge is, you know, uh, you know, currently, you know, in a hard rock area. So when you put in these yeah. piles straight down, they're called friction piles, and they bind everything together, and we test loaded the load of what a bridge times 10 with vehicles would, would weigh on, and, and, it, and it totally stands up. Let's go to John from Vancouver on the line. Hi, John. Good morning. You know, there's so many things I want to say, but I can remember calling your radio station when you had Kevin Falcon, the minister of this kind of deal, as the guest, and I said this is a irresponsible the provincial government to continue allowing uh, the switching of the lanes morning and afternoon just to appease the problem. And so many people have been injured or killed in that tunnel. I was one of them that got injured. And, you know, as far as a new tunnel, they're dredging the tunnel everywhere to get this uh, deep enough for shipping. So worrying about the salmon habitat, they're dredging. They're destroying the seafloor of, of the river anyway. So I, I'm in favor of a bridge. The line of sight's better and all the great views you'll get in the sunset. And, uh, uh, you know, stop politicizing this. Okay. Sure, make okay. it happen. Okay, John, thank you for the call. Well, it's interesting, Kevin Falcon, now the front runner to become the next liberal leader. I remember one time, Ian, when he proposed repairing 
uh, the existing Massey Tunnel and said it would last another 50 years. Whatever happened to that idea? Well, you know, that's been done. But the, the most recent uh, that I can recall when I was on Delta City Council is they did a certain amount of repairs and upgrades to the tunnel, but they, they, they can discontinued doing that, knowing, like, why spend a whole bunch more money on something that was built in 1959 and it's already yeah. in, in bad shape as it is and it's time for something new. Let's go to Mary in Coquitlam. Hi, Mary. Uh, hi there, Mike. I, hi. I, defi- I most definitely say the bridge, uh, for the reasons that have been already stated about the fish habitat, uh, the built-in coffin situation, it, it's disrupting. I can't even believe that they would even think about a tunnel anymore. A, a, a bridge seems the most uh, viable thing where they could do repairs above ground and, and not disturb everything. And, and it's like the truckers were saying, it, it, it's just a nightmare getting through a tunnel. And uh, that's my words. Mary, thank you for the call. What about the issue around hazardous materials, Ian Payton? Like right now, if you're carrying hazardous, a hazardous load, you can't go through the tunnel, right? Absolutely, Mike. Yeah. Uh, in fact, here's here's a for instance. Uh, think of all the jet fuel that goes to the Vancouver Airport. It comes up from down in Washington State. It comes through the 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 border at the U.S. Canada border and cannot go through the tunnel. It has to go over the Alex Fraser Bridge, including other uh, high toxic uh, flammable uh, loads on trucks that that cannot go through the tunnel. The tunnel is limited by the height. It's limited by the the width. And even farmers that uh, farm both in Richmond and Delta cannot take their farm equipment through the tunnel. They have to take tractors and combines and different things over the Alex Fraser Bridge. Let's go to Leslie on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Leslie. Tunnel should be demolished completely. It's nothing but a bloody death trap. What do you think they should replace it with? I want to have a bridge. A bridge, okay. Okay, we got a split opinion on it. Some people want another tunnel, some people want a bridge. Let's go to Andrew on the line, calling from Clinton. Hi, Andrew. I just, I really hope they build a bridge after all the work they did getting the Fraser River open for all the salmon and stuff up in Big Bar over the last couple of years. And now you guys are talking about throwing a tunnel over it down at, down at your end. That's crazy. We got to help out the whole province. Well, this is one of the things that, that jumps out at me. And thank you for the call is the environmental impact on this. And Ian Payton, you had mentioned earlier how one of the local First Nations had flagged that as, as a key concern for migrating salmon, which are already under dire threat in the Fraser. I mean, what kind of environmental impact would you have on... I mean, they could probably put the tunnel in while, while obviously, while fish are not migrating in the river, though, right? Uh, exactly. But, I mean, you know, putting in a tunnel in the river is going to take, what, probably... By the time they get through the environmental assessment, which is going to take years, and then, you know, five, five or six years to build the thing and put it in the river, I mean, we're, we're going to probably, over 10 years down the road, to even see this new tunnel if it does go in... But uh, First Nations have adamantly said that, that uh, they, they have no interest in a concrete tube going in the Fraser River yeah. for environmental reasons. Okay, that's going to be a, a sticky part of the solution here. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Ian Payton, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act... That sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. 
Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the federal election campaign now. An NDP leader, Jugmeet Singh, he's got a big spending agenda here in this election. How would he pay for all his promises? He says, make the rich pay, bring in a tax on the super wealthy, the filthiest, richest people in the land. Stick it to him here with a wealth tax. Now have a listen to this. This is uh, Jugmeet Singh here talking about his promised wealth tax. Have a listen. Uh, what we propose is a wealth tax on fortunes of over $20 million. So if someone's got fortune of over $20 million, we'd ask for a, we, we propose a 1% tax. So absolutely taxing wealth and taxing the rich. Uh, these are uh, the, the wealthiest, the top, top of the 1%. Uh, wealthiest Canadians that that we are asking them to pay uh, their fair share, pay a little bit more. Okay, he's dropped the threshold on this now to ten million. So if you're worth ten million or more, you would be hit with that wealth tax. Is this the way to go? Let's discuss it now. Both sides of it for you. Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, she's the BC director there. Hi, Chris. Hey. Thanks for coming on. Alex Hemingway is also on the line. Alex is an economist and public policy analyst at the BC Centre for Policy Alternatives. Hi, Alex. Hey, good morning. Okay, welcome to both of you. Alex, let me go to you first. Can you give me your take on the wealth tax idea? Yeah, you know, this is something that we've been talking about at at the Centre for Policy Alternatives for years, and this is so important at a time when inequality has really grown out of control in this country. We've seen billionaire wealth absolutely balloon during the pandemic. You know, people know this by now. They know inequality is out of control. And the question is, when are we going to do something about it? And wealth tax is one uh, mechanism to do that. Uh, You know, it's good to see that on the table in this uh, election. We've actually called for a more uh, a moderately more ambitious uh, wealth tax with a rates that would rise up to 3% on wealth over $100 million. So I think we could go further than what's on the table here. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is, you know, we've had a, a major uh, backlog of need for some very important public investments in this country, whether that's in areas uh, like childcare, uh, investing in housing, uh, dealing with the seniors' care crisis, uh, and we're an incredibly wealthy country. And if we're going to address some of these uh, uh, crises that we face collectively, climate change is on that list as well. Uh, raising revenue from the wealthiest few uh, is a, an important part of that agenda. And here we're talking about not even uh, the top one percent. If you're in the top one percent, you're not rich enough to be affected by this tax. We're talking about the top zero point five percent. So that's a fair wow. place to begin to raise revenue. Okay, the people at the top of the pyramid, Chris Sims, what do you think? Well, again, we understand that it sounds flashy. You know, let's soak the rich, let's go after those fat cats on Bay Street or wherever they happen to do their business. Um, they won't pay for much. At the, the, our position here is that the feds have mostly a spending problem. They don't have an income stream or revenue problem through taxes. At, at the rate that the parliamentary budget officer had pegged it, uh, so they estimated, so for example, in the year 2021, they would have taken in about $5.6 billion from a wealth tax. That's the estimate. Because of the rate of spending, we would have been through that in a little over three days. 
So it's not going to help. And so while it, it catches headlines and it seems more fair on the surface, we're wondering what the practical use of this actually would be. Okay, Alex, what do you say to that? Yeah, so I've, I've done some detailed uh, research on, on the revenues that could be raised from wealth tax and, and, and worked with some folks like Gabriel Zuckman, who's one of the uh, world-leading experts on tax havens, about how you can design this well and raise substantial revenue. So uh, the proposal that the NDP is putting forward in the election, uh, my estimate is that that would raise about $16 billion per year. A more ambitious wealth tax of the type that we're calling for would raise $27 billion per year. So uh, in that case, what we're talking about, this isn't small change, actually. We're talking about uh, an amount of revenue that could pay for this from this single tax. You could pay for universal uh, child care and universal pharmacare in this country, uh, which then both have big knock-on benefits to household budgets and to the broader economy. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, folks on the left-leaning end of the spectrum who recognize that we have an inequality problem. You can also look at research from uh, relatively conservative institutions like the IMS, uh, like the OECD, that say uh, economic inequality is uh, lowering our uh, long-term economic growth. It damages our economy. So it makes sense from that perspective as well. And, you know, this is one of the policies that really unites people in this country. You, you look at the polling over the past few years on the idea of a wealth tax. You see in the latest polling about 90% support. And that unites people across the political spectrum. That includes 83% of conservative voters as well. So I think it really raises some questions about our democracy when you have an incredibly popular policy uh, backed by economic research that could help tackle some of the big problems we have uh and you know we're not seeing it implemented so it okay. is good to see it on the agenda here in the, in the election chris sims your thoughts I hear, I hear what he's saying but he still doesn't explain how it'll work based on this current rate of spending so even at that much higher number i think it was over 26 billion that's yeah. still less than a month's worth of federal spending just to give you an idea it's mind-boggling in the year 2018 the federal government spent more money than in any one year of the Second World War or the Korean War or our recessions. There was no pandemic. There was no tsunami, thank goodness. Nothing crazy was happening to us, but that was still the level of spending. So I'd like to hear where he would reduce the spending. Is there a way to use this money that we're theoretically gathering from the ultra-wealthy, if they don't scurry off, um, and use it for those good things that he's talking about? How do we reduce the spending side? What about his argument, Alex's argument, Chris, on inequality in in the country would you say that would you acknowledge or admit that that is a problem it does seem to the disparity between the rich and the poor does seem to be growing wider is that a problem it is growing wider and affordability is a major problem i'll put it this right. way uh, i'm at no risk <laughs> speaking personally, of getting nailed by the wealth tax, nor are any of my colleagues. So that isn't, but it's a practicality here. How do we actually make this money actually work? So for example, but how do we get, but at, how do we erase that, that gap though? I mean, if it is a problem, if wealth disparity is a problem in the country, how, how do you propose to address it? Oh, well, the cost of living is a huge factor here with wealth disparity. And so, for example, here in British Columbia, they say BC stands for bring cash. One of the main reasons why it's so unaffordable here is because of things like the carbon taxes. It's 24 cents a liter of gasoline for people to get to work and to go buy groceries. And so that's a major knock-on effect. Uh, We have a PST here that's on everything from super fancy yachts to used clothes at thrift stores. So there are tax levels here that cause a lot of pain when it comes to income okay. disparity. So we okay. want to see broad-based tax relief for most working people. Alex, what do you say to that? 
Yeah, well, one, one thing that we can agree on is that affordability is a problem. And yes. some of the areas where people are really squeezed, households are really squeezed, are in areas like housing, in areas like uh, child care. Uh, and that's where we've seen over the past number of decades uh, public investment uh, drop off uh, uh, dramatically in the case of housing or, feel, or, or just fail to keep up with the need in, in the case of child care. So these are areas where when we make investments together, uh, we can actually uh, leave people better off. Pharmacare is another example as well. We actually lower our overall spending on pharmacare uh, as a country when we create a universal system that helps us bargain down prices uh, against uh, the large pharmaceutical co- uh, uh, companies, for example. Uh, that big drop-off we've seen in investment in affordable housing at both the federal and provincial level is part of uh, the cause of the housing crisis that we face today. So we know we need to invest in, in these areas in, in a way that uh, is sustained uh, for the long term. And over that same period of time, we've seen public spending in this country uh, drop substantially, uh, both at the provincial and federal level, as a share of our total economic pie, as a share of GDP. So mm. when we talk Talk about uh, where spending is at. at. That has to be kept in mind. So as the economy is growing, that money is flowing more and more into the hands of the wealthiest few, and, and left, less is left over for us to address okay. some of these big crises that we face. All right, welcome back as we continue debating a wealth tax in Canada with my guests Chris Sims and Alex Hemingway. Phone lines open to them, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Wayne and Coquitlam. Hi, Wayne. Yeah, hi. Um, just like to address my uh, comment to the lady from the uh, Taxpayers Federation there. Um, you're looking for ways to spend money like this. I'd like you to address uh, the uh, federal liberals' uh, position in regard to climate change, that they want to, because they bought into a pipeline, uh, they want to continue to pump Alberta fossil fuels until they can generate enough revenue to deal with climate change. Uh, that, to me, is uh, an indefensible position, uh, but the Minister for Climate Change, Wilkinson, from the North Shore, continues to propose that. I would suggest that this money uh, is, would be very well put to climate change, which is um, imminently upon us. Okay, Wayne, thank you for the call. Chris Sims, your thoughts? Well, very quickly, uh, we didn't need to buy the pipeline to begin with. If they had simply allowed for the Kinder Morgan company, which is a private company, to spend their own money on those high salaries to get that uh, pipeline twinned, taxpayers wouldn't be on the hook for it. And if they really want to go after global emissions and make a serious dent in that, uh, it would be a smarter thing to do to sell more cleaner burning natural gas to a place like India, which has massive uh, emissions right now. That would do more, and it wouldn't be uh, punishing people just for driving to work here in Canada. Alex, could a a wealth tax generate money for climate change? Well, absolutely it can. And so, you know, we've talked uh, earlier in the conversation about uh, the type of wealth tax that focuses on the super rich uh, over $10 million and the revenue you could raise there. There are other ways we can raise revenue from uh, highly profitable corporations and, and the rich to ensure that we have the revenue on hand to make uh, the investments needed to address these huge challenges. You know, earlier we were talking about the social challenges, child care, housing, seniors care. But, you know, as we're watching the, the, the province on fire, I mean, it's, it's absolutely 
it's it's sickening. It's it's sure. it's heartbreaking, and we know we need to address these issues. We have the ability to raise revenue, to make the investments, to make the energy transition that we need. It's a choice, and it's a matter of uh, the political power of some of the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, involved here in terms of the corporate interests uh, that have blocked progress on this issue of climate change for decades now. We've got to tackle those if we're going to get serious about uh, addressing climate crisis. Back to the phone lines, Jim in Surrey. Hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, You know, not only has Trudeau literally crippled Canada in debt, he has put us in in a situation where the amount of interest and money it's going to cost to service that debt, Mm -hmm. it will be astronomical and there's no way in the world that the uber rich aren't going to avoid their fair share of tax by getting their accountants and whatnot to move money around so they don't pay any tax that's the way it's always been and that's the way it will always be okay alex what do you thanks for the call alex what do you say to that yeah, well, if we want to focus on, I mean, there, there's two separate issues there. There's the sustainability of spending and, and there's the enforcement issue. But since we're talking about wealth tax, I'll talk about the enforcement thing. You know, we've been told for, for decades now by, by the rich that don't bother to try and tax us because we're just going to get around it anyway. And actually, when you, when you look at, uh, um, uh, some of the most detailed research on tax havens uh, uh, that's out there. Uh, I mentioned earlier Gabriel Zuckman, one of the economists at University of California, Berkeley, world-leading expert on tax havens. What this research shows us is that it's actually not the tech, it's not the technical feasibility of enforcing these taxes that is the barrier. We actually know how to do it. We know the steps that we need to take. It's the political will to challenge the wealthiest few and actually put in the measures uh, that are needed uh, to enforce these types of taxes. We could talk about the specifics, but just to give you one example, uh, when you look at uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office has done analysis on corporate taxes and the payoff that comes when we increase funding for enforcement, they found that there was a six to one payoff in revenue from increasing funding for enforcement. So there's low hanging fruit there in terms of uh, enforcement if there's political will. Chris Sims. If you want to increase enforcement, all the power to you. Uh, but the phone, the caller there raised the issue of interest. Even at our rock bottom interest rates right now, over the next five years, the interest on the debt is going to be $150 billion. To, for context, wow. that would build 21 new St. Paul's hospitals. And that's at rock bottom interest with our debt. Okay, let's keep taking your phone calls. You've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Daryl in Coquitlam. Hey, Daryl. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, just, I just wanted to ask your, your guest from the uh, Taxpayers Federation. Mm-hmm. I have some numbers on national debt to GDP, and there's follows, and I'll do the G7 countries. Uh, Japan at 237%, Italy at 133%, the United States at 106%, France at 99%, and Canada at 88%. So I don't know where she gets her number f- numbers from. Is that Canada is is ranked with its peers, with its national jet, uh, debt to GDP, and also when it comes to raising taxes. To okay, let me debt. let me just let me just jump in there, Daryl, and get Chris's response in the interest of time. So your thoughts on that? He's making the case that the debt we have is actually, as a portion of our economy, is actually mm. not that bad. But your thoughts? Well, you can spin that in different ways, right? What we want to do is look at the actual numbers, and it's more than doubled in the past six years. It's now more than a trillion dollars. And if folks think that that's not a problem, well, we just need to reintroduce them to the early 90s when they had to make all those cuts 
that hurt because we had a major deficit problem. So we're warning people now, we got to get this under control or we're going to pay for it or our kids are going to pay for this. Okay, Alex, you had made the point earlier about uh, Canada's debt load maybe being not not as bad. I mean, do you agree with the caller there? Yeah, I think th- there's two important things to say about that. One is uh, that when we fail to make social investments in a crisis, uh, that actually causes major economic damage. So we'd be worse off in terms of our uh, fiscal sustainability if we weren't uh, investing in uh, take- making sure people were taken care of during the uh, pandemic. Uh, and uh, in the longer term, when we fail to make some of these social investments, uh, that, that we were talking about earlier that also damages the economy. I am going to, I'm going to try and find some common ground with, with Chris here in one place though. You know, uh, when we talk about, uh, spending issues, you know, if it, it was right to spend at very high levels in this crisis, that's crucial for both people and, and the economy. Mm-hmm. But when you look at specific okay. programs like, uh, the, the federal wage subsidy, yeah. we were warning from this, uh, about this way back in April 2020, that uh, without provisions brought in to ensure that highly profitable corporations weren't uh, uh, profiting off this program, uh, that's exactly what was going to happen. And that's okay. what we've seen. So th- there are areas where we can be concerned about spending, but overall, uh, we do need to be thank- spending big right now.